Way too good to die. Way too good to die. Okay, we are live with the 13th episode of The Business We've Chosen. The guest we've chosen today is Subtle Alterity on Twitter at Subtle Alterity. Subtle Alterity, welcome to the show. Hey there. Happy, uh, happy to be on this. So we had some technical difficulties earlier that were um, pretty standard for the podcast, but luckily Subtle Alterity is quite the uh, technician, so was able to fix these a little bit. You are kind of, I would say, a unique guest on the show in that you don't have a long experience of betting or even a lot of, I don't think you've bet a lot yourself. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I, uh, so how do you started... find gambling Twitter? Because now you're kind of, you know, if I'm ever in the same tweet as you, or something it's just mentions kind of endlessly <laughs> you seem to be pretty in it with a lot of different people how did you find that you seem to have found the group i would say how did that happen yeah um well i started trying to gamble and build models and stuff um i wanted to bet nba um just, you know pretty naive about it the sport i watched sport i liked thought i could build models because I know a little bit of math. Um, so I built some uh, like player rankings or public work and uh, tweeted it out from a different Twitter account and then had someone on gambling Twitter DM me and we just kind of talked. From there, kind of discovered the rest of gambling Twitter, I guess. People were talking about things that Okay, gotcha. So uh, one led to the other. Kind of, what? One, it was kind of through one person or through, you kind of quickly found the shortcut yeah. to gambling Twitter. I, I did the thing where I looked at who they followed and made a new account and followed everyone on that that person followed pretty much. So, Yeah, uh, that seems like a pretty good alga. Yeah, yeah. It's a, kind of a flaw in the Twitter product that I like make a new account for this kind of stuff instead of like making a list or whatever. Okay. So your NBA betting, you seem like an NBA expert. It's kind of a, it's kind of a good, I think it's a good thing to talk about because I know very little about the NBA, but I've actually started in the last maybe two months betting it. Um, not a ton of money, but I'm kind of running things every day and trying to make them better. And NBA it kind of has a mythology around it that it's so you can bet so much money and it's impossible and you know you can't win at the end because if you could you could make so much money and there's a lot of stuff you know like Haralabob has said but even outside of that stuff more like anyway there's it's kind of an undertaking but when I started doing it it almost seems as if a lot of the it's like things get priced quickly and for reasons that seem obvious and then it just kind of sits there is that it seems almost as if everyone was kind of using similar methodologies to make plays is it that the nba data is so much stronger that 
kind of the answer is more well known by the crowd. It it's such a unique betting experience for me because things they just seem kind of predictable, but not in a way that I can really exploit. It's more like when I think the line should go to ten, it you know it it is, or it's kind of right around fair all the time. Is that making any sense? So you're saying it it moves a lot really early. It's and almost as if things like get bet things are the lines for the day will be there and like my terrible models will show an edge to the rockets and the timberwolves or whatever like blind spots bet on terrible teams bet against good teams that i have and then when players go out you know they kind of the line will adjust by the proper amount and then it sits there again it almost seems as if the numbers settle into a spot that kind of makes sense and they don't really seem to go off of that too often? Um, maybe. I mean, I, I think there's still some stuff that moves a lot like near the end, um, maybe totals especially. Um, yeah, I, I, you mentioned that you think that everyone kind of does it similarly, like models the NBA similarly. Um, obviously, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think you made a good point about the data. Like, um, it's fairly easy to get, I think, and um, players kind of play a lot. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you can kind of get to – I would imagine that people could kind of get to similar numbers with similar methods, um, but uh, – I think the rabbit hole is also like infinitely deep. You can adjust for so many things um, that I think, you know, most people wouldn't right away. Um, and maybe those are things that could help you win at the end. Um, yeah. And I, I, guess I assume like the way when you that say I was going about doing... it was mostly using like, a, I wasn't really making anything myself more so using other people's work. Sure. Is it, yeah, are, like the, if you use are the stats the that have been used, are like RAPM and Darko and whatever other kind of public decent stuff is out there, how good is that stuff in your opinion? How accurate um, is that? Um, is that most of the reason for moves? Can that explain a lot of it? It seems to me like they kind of can, but also are kind of useless in that. Like I never have any bets, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, this kind of makes sense, but yeah, I mean, I think anything I show an edge to is just wrong. Like it's an adverse <laughs> selected edge, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably where you could do some more adjustments or like um, where there might be weaknesses in those um, particular public metrics. Um, and I, I think, like you know, some people talk about doing like a sim for basketball. Um, I've never tried that, but I imagine you could get some pretty different answers or pretty different results um, if you went towards doing a sim, maybe not even a full sim. But uh, yeah, I think there's some somewhere in between um, looking at, you know, like RPM or whatever and weighted by minutes and get a number and like a full simulation. And maybe like somewhere along that spectrum is where you start showing edges. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, 
yeah, it's kind of, there are infinite rabbit holes you can go down and everything. In NBA, it's kind of, maybe it's just like a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked up and incorporated into a lot of the ratings, um, where you just have to go further down the rabbit hole because people have already done a lot of it. Whereas the sports I'm kind of familiar betting, college college sports and golf and stuff, the rabbit hole like has not really been explored that much. So I think it's just maybe easier. Or you don't you don't have to go as deep with the NBA, maybe you do. The simulation stuff always seems so hard just because you like have to get everything right. And it seems like any adjustment you would make, like, oh, I'm gonna like tweak this offensive rebounding percentage up for this lineup. You just like how could you be so confident to do that? And then if you did it, your edges are gonna be like, Well, that's why, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like um with the sim, like what would your inputs even be that like you tweak every day, right? Like, uh, yeah. it would, I feel like it would have to be like, you just press a button, it runs the sim and like you get your results and like, I I would never go in. If I had a sim, I don't think I would ever go in like manually adjust an offensive rebound percentage. Cause I, I, just I don't even know how, how you came up with, you know what I mean? If you're, if your sim is on a possession, like this team takes a shot and then they get the rebound uh-huh. some percentage of the time. Just even like the difference between it being fifteen percent versus eighteen percent or something might have a huge impact on the spread in total, and it seems like it'd be so hard to ever have any confidence that one was more correct than the other. You know, right? But I mean, I I think you could model each of those component parts. But um, if you start thinking about all the different rules and stuff in basketball, yeah, there's a lot of components. if you had a lot of time, I feel like you could do it, time and resources. Um, and I'm sure like, as you're doing it, you would learn a lot about, uh, you know, different things to take shortcuts on or whatever. Like, I, I kind of think of myself as taking a lot of shortcuts now by not doing a sim. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you play basketball? How, how, why is NBA your favorite sport? You just, that's what it is? Uh, yeah, I mean, I did not play basketball growing up, actually, um, and play sometimes now just for fun or whatever. Um, but uh, I would say, like, it was the process that got me back into the NBA. Like, I watched a lot as a kid, um, and it was kind of the sport, like, I watched and would talk about with my friends. But um, the process, like, uh, you know, like the Sixers and – 2014 or 2013 or whatever um when they kind of like blew up that team and try to accumulate draft picks um that like got me into it because i was like oh there are smart people like trying to trying to like uh win at the nba in like a different way um and i i don't remember if i'd heard of moneyball before that or not but um yeah, the, the idea of that, like, oh, these people who, like, know math and do statistics things, like, are trying to find, uh, a, like, a different way to win. Um, I thought that was super cool. And, like, I kind of became a Sixers fan. Like, I have no ties to Philadelphia, but thought what they were doing was pretty cool. Like, um, they were uh, they were hiring for, like, a analytics position or whatever when I was in college. Um, and they posted on, like, Hacker News, which is uh, – like probably not a place that any other basketball team at that point would post. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Hacker News. It's like a 
kind of a place where all these it's like a forum for tech people um like startup tech people um yeah so they like posted on there like on the on the job board there um which i was like kind of meshed with my other interests and um yeah that like got me back into uh caring a lot more about the nba again and also just like thinking about like how do teams win i I had never really like thought about that before i was kind of just a fan um so what is your impression of the process and sam hinkey uh i like sam a lot um i think uh it's it's very like cult like um the process in that um you know they're just doing something so different that uh it drew a lot of <laughs> weird people on like form subcultures on twitter and stuff uh, it, it feels like uh they've squandered a lot of the assets that they've built up built up over those years um i mean their team is good now i'd say the process like definitely worked um and they just had like bad management after um in the last couple of years that have made it kind of go not so well um but yeah i mean they picked a lot of low-hanging fruit i don't think it took a lot of like advanced math knowledge to do what they were doing but just found like organizational buy-in um you know they they found a first-time head coach um when they decided to blow the team up so you don't get those weird uh coach front office uh disagreements so hard to have money ball yeah i got you yeah it's yeah. i mean it kind of seems like he attempted to exploit the inefficiency of teams don't want to be bad. And if you are bad, you can get some, you know, future wins. But I mean, I think it goes a lot further. He didn't really exploit it because he's like, it didn't work and he like got fired and everyone hated him. So in a sense, it's like, well, (laughs) you can't just say like, Oh, well, you know, you didn't give me enough time. It's like, well, the reason that no one does this isn't because you're the only smart guy to figure it out. It's like you're taking on another risk as well. Like, you know what I mean? Right. I, I see that it's point. Kind of like I a little that. naive to be like, oh, like, look at what we did. And, oh, you know, we got it in really good. It's like, well, yeah, but part of it is what you took on. Like, there's a reason people don't take it on. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the teams are too stupid that are run by legit idiots. But yeah, it just seemed like, and I seemed a little high and mighty for coming up with really <laughs> simple stuff. Yeah, and I, I don't want to speak for Sam Hankey, but like you know, getting fired wasn't like the worst thing for him. So oh yeah, I mean it was, yeah. and that kind of makes it even worse. I feel like, in my opinion, where you know he like had his yeah I don't know just kind of got well, rubbed so, the wrong way by it. I think. And that offer letter was hard to was hard to read through. Oh, you, you didn't like that? It was kind of like uh, kind of reminded me of like being in the investing club or something in college, and <laughs> like someone puts together like some like investment thesis with some quotes and stuff. I think there were like a few Warren Buffett quotes in it, or kind of some yeah, fringe yeah. finance like high school stuff, you know? Sure. I mean, he came from finance, so I, I can. He was at like Bain Capital before, so I could, I could see him doing that. Um, it seems like genuinely him though. Like if you if you read his other stuff, um, 
like now he still writes in the, like the exact same way. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's, so you, you said it's him trying to exploit um, teams not wanting to be bad. And I think it was like a lot more than that. And um, that they would, they actually just like try to understand the rules of everything and like, figure out where the rules could be broken, like in the salary cap and stuff. Yeah, what are like maybe the, let's say, what are like the five main things that they did? Because I'm not really all that familiar with, um, what would you say are like the the key moves that were made? If there are even, were, were there like uh, a few I, key moves that you could distill it to? I don't know. I mean, the moves were just like getting future, like unprotected picks. But I think... Uh, instead of boiling it down to key moves, just like um, things, like themes that they try to do, I could kind of talk about that, I think. Um, like they would, it's popular now in the NBA, but like sign young players who are kind of on the fringe to like non-guaranteed contracts for multiple years. Um, so that like if they do turn out well, like you get them on the minimum for multiple years instead of uh and and if they turn out bad you can just cut them with like no consequence right and um these players kind of like sign these contracts because like uh they at least get that first year guarantee where they can make an nba salary which is just so much more than uh you can make in g league or even europe or some people don't want to go to what's europe the minimum salary it's like four hundred thousand dollars a year or something five hundred <clears throat> no it's like for a real NBA contract, I think it's like nine hundred thousand. No. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Are the uh, rookie contracts something like lower than that? The the rookie minimum is like nine hundred k, I think. Um, yeah. But like the the first round picks are on a different scale. Um, so I, I guess like this this thing he did where he would sign a guy for like one year guaranteed and three years non guaranteed. They call it like the hinky special now or whatever, um, and that's. Uh, that's like so something. Why didn't teams that, do that before? Was there a reason? It was just like they were stupid and didn't, and now they do. I think that's part of it. Also, like it puts the agent in a tough spot too. I think, like maybe agents don't like it that much. Um, so then, I guess, why did the players take the deal? You know what I mean? Like what broke? Well, like, I mean, just a few players accepting them to where now you have to or something. Yeah, I think it it's like uh, for the players, it's better than their other alternatives, which is like not being in the NBA. Um, so he, so they they got a couple players where there were three non guaranteed years. Now that like seems like players don't do that many non guaranteed years. It's like two non guaranteed years. Um, but like for example, like the reason they made the reason they offered the three non guaranteed years is like. They saw this one thing in the salary cap, which was um, in the fourth year, if a player has a four-year contract, like in the fourth year, you can renegotiate that year of the contract. Um, It only applies for like four-year contracts. So like they got that benefit with Robert Covington. Like if you go back and look at his salary history, kind of has a weird, weird thing where he got like a big, uh, he signed that four-year contract where there were three non-guaranteed years and the last year he got like a big bump because like the Sixers had the room to give him the bump. Um, and then they were able to leverage that to like sign him to a cheaper extension because they were like, oh, we're going to give you a massive pay increase this year. 
Um, so and the next in years, when we they signed extended it, it five, six, seven with low, yeah. low in those years because four was a big year. Yeah, exactly. And um, if he said like "fuck you," I'm quitting. He wouldn't get four, and he wouldn't get it from anyone else. Uh, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't have got the extension. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, what, let's say, it, like, if he's, why would he agree to less than what he's making in four for that extension? Unless oh, no, they so, could cut him and he wouldn't get four or something? Well, the, yeah, the fourth year was like, they, they didn't have to give him the huge bump in that fourth year. It's like, oh, we'll give you this huge bump now if you, if you also agree to extend for years like five, six, seven, eight. Oh, okay. So they bumped. Yeah. So when he signed the contract, the big year four was not included. It was at the it was end not of included. three. They were like, we will extend you and give you a big bump in four. Yeah. However, you know, five, six, seven may be a little less than. You yeah, exactly. Elsewhere. And like. Um, so the reverse you, hanky after that. Yeah. Gotcha. You can. Uh, so like, it's so rare to renegotiate contracts because it's like so few players are in that situation. But I guess someone in that front office like found that. Um, it was like, oh, if we take a sh enough shots on these like kind of fringe players and sign them to like four year, like the initial four year contract, like maybe we can find one that hits and then we can get them cheaper, like on their next contract too. Um, why does the why does the NBA salary cap have player maxes? How does that <laughs> end? Like in twenty years, or you know, if I was the commissioner, there wouldn't be maxes. Yeah. Um, how would that play out? Would that be a reasonable thing? Is it possible that that happens? What are the incentives like keeping these player maxes in place? Because as I understand it, a lot of players would sell for a lot more than they currently do, but they're just not allowed to by the arbitrary rules of the NBA. Yeah, that's totally the case. Um, they are like, in terms of like how much they're worth to a team, they're worth way more than the max is like 35% of the salary cap. So is that just like, I mean, capital G greedy owners, it's like nefarious <laughs> owners. Is that the answer? It sounds a little. No, no. I think it's it, actually but... like the players union is really strong in that, like in a, in a non max environment, more than half the players will get paid way less than they do now. Like you're, fifth starter, sixth man type of person probably gets, I don't know, like $10 million a year. But like if LeBron is getting 70% of the cap. Uh, no, but let's say the cap doesn't exist either. Or the cap, oh, gets the cap doesn't exist. Well, whatever oh, yeah. the cap is now, quintuple it and remove player maxes. Oh, yeah. Then oh, that's interesting. I've never thought about this that. This seems way. like a much uh, better scenario for everyone involved except the people who have to pay the salaries. But I imagine that if it just happened, it could happen. You know what I mean? Like the owners would make yeah. less money and would pay more salaries, but it would, they would still be making money operating the team or right. there would when, still be when, people lining up to buy these teams and pay these salaries. And maybe quintuples too strong, but like would, the uh, ridiculous economics of the salary cap in the NBA, I just don't understand why they are the way they are. Yeah, would the league like come in and make sure that all the owners are like liquid enough or something? Because uh, what's the current salary cap? Like a hundred million dollars or one hundred twenty? Yeah, million like one ten ish. Yeah, I'm under the impression that the NBA teams operate at a profit, or is that wrong? 
some do at, not all around even around even some lose yeah okay so maybe the salary cap just is fair and they can't really afford to pay more than that it just seems like such a weird I mean, situation I... where <laughs> like there are these stupid fights for players and and like yeah guys grouping up to go form some team when if you just eliminated these player maxes all that would end and it would be like more fair you would have to and fair in a sense of any team can pay what they want for a player and kind of construct yeah, totally. their team as they wish totally i mean if i were the commissioner maybe just uh like make sure that all the owners are liquid enough um like i don't think the league has enough of those like super rich owners like such that you could get rid of the salary cap right now at least like if you're i don't know pick on a random okay so uh, if they eliminated the ran if they eliminated the salary cap right now then just whoever the richest owner is would just get the best team because he yeah can. yeah i think so and you think i mean i think that if they doubled the salary cap Within two or three years, all the teams would still be at the salary cap. Maybe the current owners would have to sell, but the team doesn't become any more or less valuable. You know, you could just sell your stake in the company yeah. in the in the team, which you, you would probably make a lot of money on. Yeah, it just seems like this can't continue or yeah, or maybe it can, but it would be more interesting if it didn't. You know? Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't really know all the workings of like how um how the cap came to be or like how uh what would have to happen for it to be removed um they're talking about like a new media deal or something that would increase the cap a lot um yeah hmm. in the next five years that that might be interesting like yeah all right let's go to a question from chatham what are some widely accepted opinions in public NBA analysis that are misguided? I guess this kind of relates to what I was saying earlier with some of the public models seeming to fit the market fairly well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what would you say are kind of the misguided ideas out there? Not the like idiots that have stupid ideas, but more like the established ideas that are mostly agreed upon yeah which of those um, are wrong or which could be potentially exploited um right for betting into markets that have kind of settled i think one the first thing i thought of was uh like people talk about luck adjustment especially with regards to three-point shooting like i think the idea is that um the percentage the three point percentage you allow is like not something you can really control. So when some people build their models, like they will assign, like if the result of a possession is a three pointer, they'll assign it like the expected value of that three pointer. Um, and I actually kind of hate the concept of luck adjustment. Um, people, so the, the three point thing is like, Oh, in small samples, like some players are unfairly punished or rewarded for their teammates 
making threes or like giving up a lot of threes. Um, so they're just like, oh, let's just like slap on luck adjustment. It's like a panacea for everything. We're going to like, we can get come to conclusions in like smaller samples and stuff. Um, but I think you lose a lot of signal. Like there is actually signal in shots being made um, and like coming up with the expected value of the three-pointer is like not easy i think like people i think will just do like league average three-point percentage or like the player's career average or something like you're just losing a ton of signal when you hastily apply like that sort of luck adjustment like i feel like you would kind of need like a um like a whole shot model that would give you the expected value of like any shot right and maybe you use that expected value for for the three-pointer and Does like that no seem one... reasonable? If I had a, well, you know, if you got a bunch a of three of... point data of X Y locations of the shot, X Y location of the nearest defender, like variable yeah. one yeah, is kind of like a... career three point shooting percentage. Variable two is how far away is the defender. Variable three yeah. is how far away is the shot. You might be able to fit something pretty good. I think so. I mean, like uh, that would kind of be like an expected goals model in soccer or hockey or whatever. Um, I don't know why I brought up hockey. I, I know nothing about hockey, but like uh, at least the soccer ones are like decent, I think. And they like, at least the ones built off of tracking data um, seem to, you know, capture a lot of the effects that you wouldn't capture if there were like no defenders. Like, but so yeah, if you had all that defender like tracking data, I think you could get something decent for, for like a actual luck adjusted three point number. Um, but then the other part of the problem with luck adjustment is like, what are we luck adjusting? Are we only luck adjusting the three pointers? What about like two point jump shots, right? Like wide open two point jump shots are the same as wide open three point jump shots in that like the defense also doesn't really have that much control. And um, so like, where, where does that end, right? Maybe do you have like a model that has expected value of every shot? I don't know. Yeah, so so luck adjustment. Um, I'm not saying like uh, if someone goes three for five, they're sixty percent three point shooter. Like that kind of stuff needs to be adjusted. But if you just smash everything toward means, like that's also not not good. You lose a lot of signal. Um, so that's yeah, that's like one big uh, I think analytics opinion that I think is bad um or is not treated with enough nuance um another like big thing i don't know if this is like a analytics opinion but uh i think analytics people are just like too quick to entertain like these eye tests or like real hoopers know people on twitter <laughs> like uh i mean it's fun to kind of like dunk on them or whatever but that's kind of like very self-serving um and obviously i feel like i'm guilty of that often but uh yeah it's just like such a stupid endeavor <laughs> what about if we're not bashing things down to means would would it be useful to have priors of like this guy is good at shooting threes this guy is bad at shooting threes this guy is good at whatever based on things we know about basketball because that seems like you could like the points you made first and second about luck adjustments, overbashing, and eye testing, 
you seem it seems like you could use both of those to kind of cancel out the problems of each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think you could, you know, if you cluster players or something, yeah. Um, or I don't even know about clustering players, but more like, I mean, there's not that many guys in the NBA, you know, it's just a few hundred. If you just like watch them all and are like, this guy is good at shooting or this guy is not good at shooting and I'm going to like have this stronger prior on him or weaker on him being good or bad, could that potentially be an eye test thing that could be useful? Yeah, I think so. Totally. Like, um, if you just watch uh, what which players like teams are willing to leave open, um, maybe you can just assume that they're not so good three point shooters. Uh, that's something I, like a eye test would tell you. Yeah. So I've never, I haven't done too much NBA analytics. I probably will in the next few months, but. I actually played a lot of basketball when I was like in college and stuff, not on the college team, but like pick up basketball and stuff. Um, To me, I feel like I can tell when someone's good at shooting threes or not, just like after the first one or two, you just, it's Uh like, oh, that guy looks like he's good at shooting threes. In the NBA is the selected group of players. They're all so good at basketball that that sort of analysis is useless. Or do you think there could literally be something there where like, you go watch five shots or you know six shots of each of the players shooting a three and just write down like he's either category one bad category two average or category three good could yeah, that I think be something uh, that's useful or that's almost certainly not certainly not at that level of basketball <laughs> um i think like uh yeah shooting form is just uh you know if you're drilled in it your entire life, it'll probably like if you shoot with good form, it'll get you to a certain spot. But there's a lot about there's a lot like talent stuff that um, helps you get to the NBA. And you know, you, you repeat the same bad looking shot a billion times, like you might get pretty good at it. Um, well, and, like, I don't know if it's necessarily like a good versus bad looking. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but not just a looking, but more like. I've played a lot of basketball and seen a lot of basketball. This guy's shot seems good. It might look ugly, but it could be good. I don't know. It seems like there might be something there. Like from my experiences betting golf, I've watched a lot of golf golfers hit shots. And I do use a little bit of like, this guy is good at this and this guy is not just on like how it looks. Now that might be stupid. And golf is obviously easier than NBA. But I don't know how crazy it is. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely probably useless. But anyway, your certain, your quick, your snap certainly useless makes me uh, less confident. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just have one player that like sticks out in my head. Um, like, Who's that? Uh, like Jalen Brown, just like looks like you know when he goes up and shoots free throws, it, like you know, looks like he'll go in. His his arms are like in the right positions, and they're like moving in a coordinated and like logical way but then you like look up his stats and it's like 65 percent or something you're just like holy shit how can he be so different than like the best free throw shooter that'll literally make like 25 more free throws over a 100 shot sample and it's just i don't know i was I, i was thinking that last night i was watching um the ucla alabama basketball game oh me too and that guy for Alabama, Herbert Jones, went to the free throw line. Yeah. 
And yeah. I mean, he just throws up brick after brick, and it's like, well, yeah, this guy throws up a bunch of bricks. And then they flashed, he was 74% on the season. And I was yeah. like, well, 74 is not bad, but this guy looks like he shoots 50. Um, yeah. Yeah, you could, I mean, you could definitely get into weird spots with guys, how they look versus what they are. Exactly. Co and college is probably way lower samples, too. I mean, NBA, especially guys who have been around for a little bit, will have shot a lot of a lot of free throws. And it's much more serious of you're a professional doing this, not like some random kid who, you know. Yeah, I don't know. So that that's why I was so snap. Like, no. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, so what so, other and, uh, NBA analysis that are misguided? Yeah, so I think, um... I mean, it could be kind of educating for me because I don't really know too much of the NBA analysis, but I'm looking to learn as I start to bet this for some real money. Yeah, um, at least in the NBA, like, Twitter discourse, like, the kind of self-branded analytics people, I think kind of <laughs> give their, they give their own opinions, like, too much epistemic weight because they see themselves as analytics people and like they'll give their non-analytics opinions like the same weight that the output like that then like the same weight as the outputs of their models which are like you know well researched and whatever but like they think they can just spout off some opinion and like what would be an example good. oh man um I can't think of anything like off the top of my head, but like if you just kind of peruse some of these, uh... <laughs> we'll give a general yeah. example. Maybe not a specific one. I'm I'm not sure exactly what you mean. And an example, an example might uh, help solidify it in my head. Like uh, you know, they're watch, they're like tweeting through a game, and they're just like, "Wow, this guy is like so good," or like, "He's a uh, you know he does this like one thing on help defense really well. Like he must be a great defender." Um, and like, yeah, that's kind of the, that's like kind of what you do if you just like watch basketball and like don't have models, I guess. Yeah. But then like they'll go back and see like this player's like not actually that good at defense in their model. But then like they'll still give their like observation a lot of weight. And then we'll even go as far as like, oh, I need to fit my like defensive player values to like my eye test type of thing yeah it seems not great right and it's like <laughs> they uh well because like it is true that defense is hard to measure and so they kind of go like oh defense is so hard to measure there's these like weird players kind of like high in my defensive metric but like i just watched them yesterday they don't look that good like there must be something wrong with the model like i'm gonna now weight my model like 50 percent in my opinion based off like watching you know a little bit of basketball like also 50 percent, and i just think like the opinion should like maybe inform like what you put into the model like maybe you go back and be like oh shit like i didn't notice that um i could add this variable for like you know how many help blocks do they get or something so how are the nba teams themselves yeah going about measuring defensive impact because I can't imagine that they're doing much better than self-proclaimed analytics people on Twitter. Like <laughs> the NBA team itself 
what's going into there. I doubt there are any models, you know what I mean? Like, do, maybe they have a guy there who's running something, but no one listens to him. Like, how are they evaluating in real time? Like, this guy is good at defense. This guy is bad at defense. I'm going to play him more. I'm going to play him less. Or is that kind of the next frontier of winning NBA games, making those decisions better? Um, well, I think, I mean, ultimately the coach kind of chooses who plays more. Well, are the coaches good at doing one? that? I assume that they would be bad at doing that. Yeah, I mean, they're probably okay, but like um, the front office, the analytics people would kind of be more like, oh, which players should we sign or trade for? I think they do probably much better job than the public at measuring defense just because they have all the tracking data. Um, and yeah, you just lose like so much granularity when you're working with play-by-play -play and... Um, like, I, I don't even know where, like, defensive players are. Um, and if you have that tracking data, like, you know where players are, you know how they can deter shots, you know. But even the tracking data seems like it would be hard. Like, what, what would you be looking for in the tracking data to bump someone up or bump someone down in your defensive rankings? Like, being close to the ball could be good, could be bad. Being close to the defender they've been closest to the last three seconds could be good, could be yeah. bad. It I seems mean, like, like it'd be hard to kind of figure that out. Yeah. Well, if your scheme is like, oh, you play pick and roll in a certain way, right? Like, are you in a, like, if you're the big and you're, like, dropping on a pick and roll, like, are you in the optimal position to, like, deter the shot while also not letting, like, the ball handler pass the ball or something? Like, you could Which would definitely... be defined as, like how close you are to each player as long as you're within you know four or five feet or something of each yeah like distance and you can also just like look at the results right like how often oh, am I, gotcha. yeah yeah allowing the dump off to like an easy dunk or something you know um, okay yeah i guess and you need the tracking data to determine right. were they involved in the pick and roll play right or like um you know you can measure these two players defending a pick and roll like what is the expected value of the possession before the pick and roll starts? What is the expected value of possession like after the guard comes around the screen? Um, or like two seconds after or something, right? Like um, that's kind of like the really far down the rabbit hole stuff that is like theoretically possible with a, with a team and like impossible as a like member of the public. Yeah. Um, so what does the future of the NBA look like in terms of the court size? It seems that the court could be expanded and probably will be expanded at some point in the next 100 years. Is that <laughs> something that will happen in the next 10? Is that something you think could or should happen? Um, I, don't, I don't know if I really have any opinions on if it should happen um should in terms of the game could get more interesting and i guess the game could be less solved um, yeah. if it even is solved already i mean that might not be accurate yeah i mean i don't think it is i i think like uh that court expansion discourse kind of comes from these like charts that show that like oh no one is shooting like mid-range shots anymore which is like which is true right? not true 
<laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, I I didn't I didn't put this I, I didn't think of this under the uh, like misguided opinions because I I thought that this is just something that people uh, accepted as like only dumb people say like there's no. This is under the incredibly misguided opinions section. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, like it's it's basically like no one is spotting up from like a for a two point jumper, but like there's probably more uh, isolation, like two point unassisted two point shots than there were before. So when people like Kurt Goldsberry are spouting that stuff, is it because yeah. a they are too stupid and believe it's true? B that's their brand, so they just are going to keep it going to keep their jobs or see other, you know? Um, I think a lot of B and C like Kirk wrote a book, I think, <laughs> you know, like he, he like wants to show this idea of different uh, court configurations and stuff. So like he'll sure. keep putting out that graphic and like it gets incredible and great engagement on Twitter. Like it's just retweeted a billion times and like yeah, all it the gets comments like 2000 really likes every time. And it's like, Oh, Whoa. I remember seeing yeah. it like six years ago for the first time and was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then occasionally yeah. it'll get linked on gambling Twitter and it's like, whoa, it's the same thing you tweeted six years ago. Have you been tweeting yeah. this for six years? <laughs> yeah, he's been tweeting the same thing. And like, uh, I think it looks so stark because he's like binning the shots and there's just like more area in the mid range. And his, 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 his chart is like top 100 locations. And if each location is like a two foot by two foot square on the court, like there's just a lot more two foot by two foot squares, like inside the three point arc than right. <laughs> like, yeah. So if you do that, yeah, obviously it looks like there's nothing, but like if you, you know, read uh, or like look at other charts that show like change in uh, unassisted two point shots over time, it's like, I, I think it's like relatively same, maybe even has gone up. And the th thing that's really gone down is like assisted two point jumpers are gone. So like someone just catching the ball at 18 feet and shooting is like done, like that's gone, which I don't think that makes basketball like any worse of a product. I guess it's people that look at these charts and then like watch five minutes of game and like say, oh, all they're doing is shooting threes. But like, I think there's a whole process and like, how do we generate good three pointers? Like how do teams, um, you know, defend against offenses that try to get good three pointers and stuff like that. So. Is it possible that the three point line is adjusted in the next 10 years that the impact it has is changed, uh, via rules or is that seem unlikely? Um, I, I, I could see it. I mean, college has already like moved a little bit, but they're still uh, going, they're still before the NBA line. I guess like, yeah. the NBA is the, the frontier, if you will. Will they make any so. changes to that? Should they? Is the three point shot overrated now to you? Uh, I mean, you're a young guy. A lot of old people complain like, oh, you know, back in my day, X, Y, Z. But do you I guess think just, that the three-point shot is overrated? Would basketball be more interesting if it was moved no. back or if there was also a four-point line or if there was also, you know, like, are there any sorts of rules changes you would make that you think 
would make the game better or more interesting? Um, I mean, yeah, you can move the three-point line back a little bit. Like, maybe make the court a little bit wider. Um, just, like, give more space for the offense. Because that whole be corner more... three thing that, you know, Haralabob always talks about, it seems so stupid. Like, yeah, the corner three is closer. Well, just, oh, like, close. a corner three is valuable because it's closer than other shots, but it's still three well, Actually, and it's, it's not like, because, because it's closer, I think. Oh, well, for whatever reason. Yeah. Oh, well, if it's yeah. not because it's closer, then I guess my rationale yeah. goes out the window. I figured because it was kind of closer because the court was applied enough. Oh, no, they're just, uh, I mean, it is closer, but the reason is because they're more likely to be assisted. Like, they're more likely to just be catch and shoots. Like, that pretty much explains all the difference between uh, okay. above the break. So the distance is almost irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. 21 and a half versus 24 and a half feet just doesn't matter too much for me. Yeah, I think for a pro, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess I'd, I'd be curious to see when the NBA kind of gets to, like, the equilibrium point of, like, when the expected value of threes, like, kind of goes below uh, average, like, offensive efficiency, or if that could ever happen even. Um, assuming that, like, offenses continue to get better, which they kind of are, if, uh, you know, if a team scores uh, 105 points per 100 possessions in half court um like what's the break even three-point percentage and like if they go to 112 points per 100 possessions then the break even three-point percentage has to be a lot higher and maybe like it won't increase in the same way and then once that happens then like you could say three-pointers are overrated has how much of Uh, the offensive efficiency increase has just been because teams now take more threes or employ more good shooters on their rosters yeah probably a decent i don't know i've never actually looked at kind of the macro stuff but uh yeah like it's uh, the more threes like it definitely makes other parts of the game like i think more interesting in that like get better angles for people to you know if you like dunks or whatever it probably opens up the lane for more dunks and layups and stuff like you play pickup basketball, right? Like if uh, if you go score like by all ones, it's just like unplayable. I think, right? I don't know if you've ever played in gyms where they. Well, I mean, when I was in college, I probably played like three hours, six days a week of basketball, oh, and nice. we would always play ones and twos to eleven. And it's oh like, yeah, that's so broken too, right? You just bomb three. Makes no sense, you know. But that's yeah. just what it is. If you even suggest playing twos and threes to fifteen. Maybe like one person on the court would say sure, but everyone else mm-hmm. is like, nah, man, like ones and twos. It's like, okay, <laughs> well, we're just going to launch a bunch of threes and then a bunch of twos, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of broken the other way. I don't know. Um... It seems to me anecdotally that the type of player that is in the NBA is now a lot more interesting where you kind of have to be good at more things or at least be less bad at less things um, in order to function. Like you're more exploitable on the court in a lot of different areas. Um, And that seems cool to me, like having more things you have to be able to do. Otherwise, you're going to get taken advantage of. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to put it. Um, You don't get those like 
300 pounds, seven foot dudes who are literally employed just to like be a warm body in front of Shaq, right? Like those people don't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like to, yeah. To follow him or guard him or whatever. So yeah. Um, okay. How about we go to, so you worked for a basketball team in some aspect. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. What was your impression of the team, the team's approach to using someone like you to make them win more games, the industry around using people like you to improve the basketball team? Like what's, what's the insider scoop on that, that people don't already know, you know? Um, I think a lot of it is so much is dependent on how much like the organization buys into actually like valuing. Um, how is that determined what, though? Cause I hear that, but yeah. what does that mean? Like if you go to work day one, mm -hmm. does it mean that your boss either gives you something interesting to work on or doesn't, but what if you're just a self-starter and are going to present cool findings to someone? Like, how does that manifest itself where the team has buy-in or doesn't have buy-in? How would that explicitly make or break yeah. some analysis, you know? Like, how does that right. actually happen? Well, so, like, um, like for the draft, for example, like, um, does the big board that the analytics model come up with, like, does that get any value or weighting in the final decision or like the final big board, right? Or is it just like, oh, analytics, like spend time working on this thing. Also, like we have scouts who like have opinions. Let's just like listen to the scouts. I, that would be like a bad example. Um, How many scouts are usually employed by these teams for the draft? Do they have full-time employees that are doing that year round? Or is it more like we hire some people beforehand or we hire a couple guys to go to this thing and send us a report to the senior day or whatever like how how are the scouts being deployed yeah it's somewhere between those two like i i have the sense that some of them are um kind of not 40 hours a week and don't like come into the office right they're like in their regional area like wherever they, they actually live um and then you know there's maybe some people who uh are 40 hours a week and might do more of the like coordination of scouts and stuff. But um, I feel like a good organization would almost not value scouts for what they see on the basketball court, but for uh, the non-basketball information they can extract from, you know, previous coaches, family, off-court stuff. Um, but what is that that's like? What that's would they truly be the, that's truly the like orthogonal like data that you wouldn't get that seems that insane level. that like a 50 year old man scouting non-court stuff could find anything useful for winning a basketball game could, could he? <laughs> i mean they like they're just like oh this dude's brother's in a gang or something <laughs> like that's that's intel that could come across, right? Or like, right. So, like, it, even if they found that intel, and even if it was true, is does that affect anything? Like, uh, I mean, his dropout rate is higher. 
yeah, or like the gym, just like, oh, I don't want to deal with like a head case dad or something. Or like they're constantly going to be like trying to get out of this situation or like they're going to complain about not playing a lot. And um, yeah, there's there's that kind of stuff. I, I don't know what the proper amount to weight it is, but I'm just saying that's kind of the, uh, uh, you know, separate information that scouts could uh, provide. Okay. Um, In terms of scouting, what is the what is the bar? What is the average intelligence of a scout, or what the average amount of info they're bringing to a team? Is this a highly specialized person that is bringing unique info, or is it you could kind of put anyone in his place and do the hours, and they would get the same? How does a scout add value? Where do scouts add value? Are they adding value? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not... I didn't interact with like, them that much. Um, that I would have, like, super strong opinions on that. But, yeah, like, adding value in terms of, uh, you know, they could get off-the-court stuff. Um, they could fill in the holes where, like, you don't have a lot of good college data on players. Um, but, like, the way that scouts don't add value is when they say, like, oh, this player is a good rebounder. He averages 12 rebounds per game. And it's like, did you look at the box score for that? Or did you, like, observe the way they, like, box out? Like, I'd rather them say, like, oh, this person has, like, a huge ass or something and just, like, uses that to box out. (laughs) Right? Like, that's way more important or way more informative than, like, oh, he averages 12 rebounds. Like, oh. Like this analytics model, like knows that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always see that sort of thing. That's like analysis of like, oh, well, this guy's got a bunch of points, or this guy's got this, and it's like, do you realize that like anyone betting that's in the model, right? <laughs> like they know it too. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah, I think you mentioned that on a previous podcast where it's like wins and losses, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, sometimes yeah. I'll yeah, you'll say like, oh, I, you know, I like the side and it's like, oh, well, you know, did you know this? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> Everyone knows that. That's in there. Exactly. <laughs> um, and okay, so another thing about analytics for a team is like, um, you can probably provide a lot of value by preventing the decision makers from like doing stupid things, like overpaying a player you can kind of ground them in what you feel like is a more fair value. Um, Maybe that aspect provides more value than like saying, oh, we found an undervalued player. Yeah, that seems like it could be useful where you just have a good framework for valuing the guy and it's like, hey, coach, scout, whoever, pick whoever you want. And like, I've got a number for what he's worth. And like, as long as you're within a 15% band of it or 10% band, like, yeah, go for it. But exactly. Yeah. yeah, Even just that could be good. How many of the decisions or trades or signings are really, really bad? Cause I feel, I mean, I don't follow any of this shit at all, but whatever mm-hmm. happens, it's like, Oh my God, they overpaid so much or they, you know, they got robbed. Like, do those sorts of robbings <laughs> and overpayings, do those actually happen? Do Are teams really overpaying for guys or 
really giving up terrible deals and getting much worse? Like, does that sort of thing happen or is it usually happening somewhere within 10% of fair? It's certainly not within 10% of fair often. Um, I think there's a lot of like non on the court stuff that drives decisions. So if you factor in like, you know, the owner's opinion and, or, or like a, the way that the owner wants to run the team or whatever, then yeah, you kind of have some constraints that makes it seem like you get robbed on the basketball court. What would be one of those? Like the owner doesn't want to have player X on his team? No or like, oh, I don't want to pay, I don't want to pay the luxury tax. So like dump player salaries and like not get anything back basically. If So if you need, so if you need to cross, I guess, or if you need, you need to get rid of a player by Sunday or whatever, mm-hmm. you're probably going to get ripped off for 25% yeah. off of fair or something. Probably. Yeah. So if you're a team that just kind of sits there and waits for teams, other teams to need to do things, you're probably going to pick up a bunch of edge. I think so. Yeah. Like the Sixers did that too. Back to like the, they would just like insert themselves into two team deals as a third team to like facilitate one of the teams getting off of more salary or something. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you think that that's really driven by the owner's actual liquidity? I mean, it makes it, they, <laughs> obviously I can't afford to be paying like hundreds of millions of dollars to NBA players. It makes sense, but it also seems kind of crazy that the liquidity of the owner would materially impact the team. Yeah. Like, I, I always figured you. that they were just super rich guys that they can like pay for whatever, but I mean, I it is you. lots of money. It makes sense. Some of that might be speculation, but I think there's also like when I was at a team, there's also kind of a, unfortunately, like a PR perspective to it too. Like you can't just get all the worst overpaid players on your roster and like get assets in exchange because it kind of looks bad, I guess. How many people are usually working for a team that aren't playing on the team and aren't like trainers or you know, fitness people or doctors, people that are just trying to make the organization win more games. Is it like 10, 20 people? Yeah, somewhere around there. It's a pretty small number, I think. Relative and how many of them know what they're doing? Like most of them, they just have different roles or are a lot of them idiots? Like how true is it that these teams are kind of like Moneyball the movie where it's a bunch of idiots and Brad Pitt, who's no, like no. also an idiot, <laughs> but kind of knows where he's going. No, I don't think there's that many idiots. It's like, um, I think uh, maybe at some point the biggest idiots were actually in analytics in that they got there because they could afford to take like unpaid internships or whatever. And they would study like sports management in college and like, Take totally. one stats class. It like, seems like you could have a huge impact of if you convince the right guy, like, oh, I know what I'm doing. Because, I mean, I've seen a lot of people who might seem like they know what they're doing, but really don't. And basically get the mm-hmm. opposite answer rather than the right answer. Exactly. So is yeah, analytics, so- like, is that going forward? Are there now people in these roles that are much sharper 
or is yes. it still kind of like no, a I think lot it's of better. okay maybe i don't know if i should attribute it to tracking data but like if you're one of those idiots there's like zero chance you can handle tracking data right like yeah each game is a million rows or whatever <laughs> yeah like it's you kind, kind of, of overwhelming to even think about exactly yeah so um, but then like there's there's a lot of people i guess complain about like nepotism or whatever and that like oh you'll have agents relatives and other front office relatives like working in front offices and like yeah it's kind of nepotistic but they are actually maybe good at their jobs because of that like um if you're the son of a big agent you can just talk to your dad and like get information and no one else on no one else in the front office would be able to get that information and like you're leveraging the fact that you're like in the in group um to be able to get it and i think that is like actually hugely valuable so it's not totally unfair that um you know there's these like nepotism hires what about uh, inefficiencies in scouting. You've listed here length of players' necks slash heads as an inefficiency in scouting. Is that tongue in cheek or is that a real inefficiency? Uh, what sorts of inefficiencies do you think exist out there? And what degree does like the person scouting, do they need to be a scout? Like, couldn't you just be a guy? Like, is it possible for me to be a great scout? You know? Yeah, I have no idea. I, I kind of said that tongue in cheek. It's just more of like, uh you know trying to look places where maybe people aren't specifically looking or just like not just perusing box scores and be like oh this guy scores a lot um i mean the neck thing is just like oh if your neck is really long and your head is long like you're kind of listed taller than you actually play like the top of your head isn't doing anything in a basketball game right um that's like the theory behind it i never actually like you know could be seeing that i guess you could have a better view <laughs> it's conversation yeah, I guess ridiculous. You can see <laughs> yeah it's it's completely ridiculous it's like um i i kind of say it as a joke but um you know you kind of have to like look for different things i feel like but also like people who look for different things but have no quantitative um thing to like check them can also just come with like really bad like i guess you could say like off-market opinions so, so you, speaking like, of that know. my uh my foray into nba scouting was following dean on draft who had some off-market opinions <laughs> based on potentially no quantitative understanding <laughs> are you familiar with his takes are those sorts of yeah. takes and him not just him but more so like the nba draft twitter crowd they seem to form a consensus, but also differ from the actual results of the draft order. Um, are they sharper than the NBA crowd? Are there is do they have any skill that the NBA could use from them? Is there any insights they bring? What is your kind of impression or opinion of the guys who are at home scouting? um there's i think a lot of bad opinions but like dean on draft would be someone who i think is like pretty good um or like 
I don't dismiss what he has to say on on prospects. I mean, I generally like draft Twitter because I think um, a lot of them just like genuinely, like unironically love basketball. <laughs> they just like love to watch basketball. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> it seems and like. I wouldn't be able to say that about a lot of like casual fans who are very like vocal about certain opinions. Like you'll never see draft Twitter people talk about like MJ versus LeBron, right? That's kind of like the casual conversation. And like draft Twitter is just like so much beyond that. So yeah, I mean, I think their like process is good, even if they have no like, I mean, they try to have some like very basic quantitative stuff to like ground what they see. Um, yeah, maybe the, like I you would, mentioned, they kind of like come to a consensus, which, you know, that's probably not the best process, but, um, they do think about different things and like point out to people like me who don't watch a billion college games that like, oh, here's like a thing that this player is good at. Like they consistently demonstrate this skill that's like not measured in the box score. Um, I go, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I will say that I think that a lot of those guys aren't in the MJ LeBron debate because it's not mainstream. And a lot of them kind of get off on being like not mainstream. Like, Oh, totally. like yeah. you're talking about like this game that happened. I'm talking about like insert prospect you've never heard of here. And whether like he might go round two twenty one or like undrafted free agent. Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah, kind yeah. of so like that they, contrarianness of it. They do maybe go a little too far in some cases with like, oh, I want to be the first to discover a prospect or something. Right. Like, oh, I stayed that. up all night thinking about this prospect's free throw stroke or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like I stayed up all night, like trying to figure out how uh, long this guy's neck is or something. Yeah. <laughs> it can it can go too far at times, but I much prefer that because like, you know, if you're aware of it, I guess you could kind of filter out that kind of take. Yeah. yeah. But the people who are just like, oh, Andre Drummond is like a 2020 guy or like, you know, 20 points, 20 rebounds. Like, he's so good. Like, yeah. They'll just never provide anything of value. So, like, I'm just never going to follow those people. Yeah. What else? What else do you want to talk about? Um, we have some Twitter questions. Um, talk about analytics versus gambling yeah i guess because you kind of have a d couple different uh, areas you're in what are your impressions of like analytics twitter i guess versus tech twitter versus sports betting twitter yeah um well it's, it's kind of cool that everyone on not everyone but most people on sports betting twitter are like anonymous you know yeah, it's kind of I guess the, in that. the only Twitters I really, I feel like, I don't know how many Twitters the average person follows because yeah, what Twitters are you I, what Twitters at are you the on? same time, I hate when people are like, oh, look, I just ended up on X Twitter for an hour. I'm very against that. Or when people are like, oh, like, don't come into Boston Celtics Twitter like without <laughs> us saying something about it. Yeah. And the Twitters that I'm on are sports gambling for sure, uh, where, you know, typical arguments 
And then also kind of macroeconomics Twitter, which it's like the same people kind of making the same couple arguments, you know, both of them are very small. I've, you know, I follow like 40 accounts and probably see tweets from like 200 and it's tiny. Um, but I wonder if most people, cause I think most people follow, you know, a thousand people, or I don't know how many you follow, but a fairer amount, how many the average person would say they associate with. Maybe most sports fans are like four, you know, they follow NBA Twitter and NFL Twitter and sports gambling Twitter. I guess I kind of follow golf Twitter, but not really. I don't, I don't really follow any of the, the main accounts over there. Yeah. I feel like I'm on 10 different Twitters or I'm at least yeah. somewhat touching. <laughs> um, no, I mean the, uh, the anonymity aspect is, is kind of interesting for, um, for, for at least gambling Twitter. I mean, in some ways that there's less of like, I follow X account because like, um, they're like, uh, you know, they have a big brand name or whatever. It's like, yeah. oh, I follow them because they tweet funny things or interesting things or, you know, troll really well. <laughs> right. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, I say this biased as an anonymous Twitter account, but it makes it like the content is kind of the only thing that you have going for it. Yeah, you're judged it, on it the It is merit. nice. I mean, I feel like there's you lose so much. Like, what's the benefit, you know, of being not anonymous? You get all the benefits, basically. But yeah, I mean, at least like uh, there's so much reputational stuff on like tech Twitter. So... So what would broadly define tech Twitter? Like who would be the key accounts? Um, like a lot of those VC accounts, I think. Um, like which ones? Like kind of like Chamath. Uh, I mean, oh, God. I, I feel like you have thoughts on Chamath. So Chamath is weird because he's like kind of crossing over into other Twitters. But, you know, My you thoughts have are thoughts. I want to run away. You want to run away from Chamath? <laughs> I want to not be near him, you know. Why is that? I just hate hearing him talk or even <laughs> translating it to text text on a page. I hate reading his words, you know? <laughs> yeah. What about it specifically? Cause I mean, I think, I think I feel similar, but maybe not as strong. I think on one level outside the content, he's like just clearly a really nerdy kid who's trying to make some friends and like has never been cool. And now he's like rich or what and owns the warriors or whatever. And if, uh -huh. and his friends with Phil Helmuth. So he's incredibly predictable through that lens. Like okay. I know one thing about him and it's like, oh, I can predict everything you're going to do. You're very uninteresting. I, I kind of know what you're going to say before it's been said. And then on a second level, it's like, he's not even smart. He doesn't know anything he's talking. Like he, it'd be one thing if there was that. And, you know, he was kind of like Nate Silver for the most part. He's kind of like on the mark on most things, but it's like, mm -hmm. no, you know, none of that. And like, just, kind of look like a fool and yeah, you're way richer than me. So like, I can't talk too much, but everything else is working against him, you know? And also like, doesn't he have billions? Like what's he doing? Like, why are you tweeting, tweeting 29,000 times and you have like a podcast you're releasing all the time and you're going on high stakes poker. Like the fact that you're doing it when you can buy anything you want in the world, uh reinforces point one and makes him even more predictable it, it's like that's kind of my chamath beef i guess 
Okay. Do, do you think he's actively trying to get richer? Isn't I thought he runs like a firm and uh, I feel like he's talking about whatever Bitcoin or inflation, yeah. you know, those types of money related things. Yeah. I mean, so I feel like uh, he does a lot of that as like a brand building thing, right? Like, right. Like what's the point of what? Yeah. I'm kind of anti brand builders, especially when you yeah. like have more money than you need. Right. Like what's the brand yeah. for? Or is the well, brand maybe, to make you seem smart and cool to have friends because you didn't, you know, reinforce I mean, point one type of stuff. <laughs> if he wants to start a fund, maybe convince other like rich yeah. people who like his bit, I guess. Right. Like, uh, oh, no, I mean, it's obviously all working for him quite well. Yeah. It just, yeah. that's oh, kind it's of like sham math. Yeah. Like he had that one ridiculous tweet about how he was beating some benchmark by like 50%. Yeah, and even so. that wasn't so bad. Like that, that was obviously bad. bad, but that's just that's just who he is. You know what I mean? There's going to yeah. be financial literacy mistakes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's kind so of. So he's tech on Twitter. tech Twitter, kind of. Yeah. I thought there'd be more but, someone like who's the Paul Graham of tech Twitter. You know what I mean? Well, is Paul is Graham the Paul just, Graham of tech Twitter? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Okay. But he's kind of like old, right? He's he's like it's a little bit washed. There's like you know this guy Keith Raboy. I don't uh, think I know him. Okay, there's like some, there's like more and more like memers, like uh, the like tech a, lead, huh? The, the tech, tech lead. lead. <laughs> he's he's on a different uh different subculture, I guess. Um, yeah, this tech lead guy is kind of like uh, he's more like embodying, like your rank and file, tech worker who is like not quite online enough to be like in tech Twitter. I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Well, then what about sports analytics Twitter? Who is like leading the, who's the leading voice there? Would it be like Nate Silver? Is that too broad? Like or like no, Daryl no. Morey? Like the PFF people. No, PFF oh, people. Oh, okay. That kind of seems lame. Um, Doesn't Chris Collinsworth then, you know, own PFF? Oh, maybe. I, I, I thought idea. he was like the owner or investor, oh. which, and they advertise it a bunch on the NBC games. I'm not sure though. He might not be. I guess I can Google this. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you have these, you have those people, you know, talking about every fourth down decision on like a NFL Sunday. Okay, he he is the owner like, of Pro Football Focus PFF. Yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. I mean, like they're specifically annoying on Sundays when they do. And that, they're all like, football. The same or do they time, also have like PF basketball. Okay. No, they're all football. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like. Basketball analytics, Twitter, like uh, you know, like Seth Partnow from the Athletic, kind of has a following. How is the Athletic um, going? Because you know, I remember, I think subscribing, but like forgot my password or can't get in, or maybe I don't anymore. Are they still yeah. operating? They got a lot of readership because when I interact with them, it's like Athletic paywalled. I forget my password. Like this right. thing's a scam. Whatever. Like close it. You know. But Ken Palmerai um, is always writing stuff for them, you know? So I'm sure it's at least decent. You know, everything he does is solid for sure. Usually great. Oh, yeah. I love him. So it, is it good or? So it's like, it's it's um, a lot of the content. I mean, the more content they produce, the more of it is bad. Um, like when they started getting like, beat writers for every team like most of that stuff becomes okay. bad 
but they'll, they'll get stories that like no one else can get. So, you know, I'll sit on the toilet and like read it, <laughs> I guess. Um, and it's pretty interesting, I guess. Um, and you know, yeah, the well-researched stuff is, it's definitely worth reading. You can't really find it anywhere else, but you're kind of like a free agents list of 2021. Like that kind of stuff is almost certainly worthless. Um, but I mean, I think they're going to be getting into like betting and gambling and fantasy totally. content. Especially soon, as it becomes so legal in every state maybe, or, you know, DraftKings is more popular. It becomes right. the same as DFS. It'll be uh, kind of necessary, I guess, you know, whoever, if they passed on it, maybe someone else would take it over or something. You might just be kind of forced into doing that sort of ridiculously cringe yeah. content. I mean, I watch golf a decent amount and they've got it up every, every time they show some group, you know, they'll have like a featured group of three guys and it'll, there'll be an ad every hour at least for, Oh, DraftKings, We've got our next feature group coming up and Bryson DeChambeau is plus one seventy five. Uh, who do you like in this one, Rick, you know, and it'll be like, Oh, I, I like, uh, you gotta can't bet against DeChambeau. They're talking about betting for a legit, <laughs> you know, 2% of the time or something. Uh, it's only, it's only going up, I think, which is, which frightens me because I can't imagine the college basketball announcers from last night who were, so terrible in every regard also adding well you know bama minus two and a half uh, plus 100 here who do you who do you like uh, i just uh, don't know if i can handle that how could i ever watch sports again or at least maybe just permanent mute <laughs> it's already going that way I've, I've kind of been surprised that the amount of like during the halftime shows like they'll put up the second half line yeah like i've seen that and i'm just like wow um but uh, i guess that's just the way things are going to be and like the athletic is definitely going to work on it or they already are um it's kind of amazing because i feel like all these people they're kind of competition for me you know like i sit around and hopefully get paid a salary by the stupid people in the market and as like more and more people enter every day it's like oh they might make the masses less stupid or make this game less beatable and i guess even though they're like a professional in it you know, in the sense of their job as hosting some radio program about betting, it's like they're still, they're making the field dumber, I think. You know, it's like there's so many of them, but not one of them is adding anything. It's kind of amazing uh, when you don't even do that much yourself. You know what I mean? It's like the level of idiocy is truly off the charts. Yeah. Do you think that's it's good, good for, for money? Like, it's just you say like, you were worried about it. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Like, I, I really I haven't watched much March Madness because I'm in the Bahamas right now. And every time I try to load a video, I get rejected for being in the Bahamas. And you can only watch this from the United States. Oh, nice. So I have watched almost none of March Madness. But I got into the, the my thing worked for the last five minutes of a game between UCLA and Alabama last night. And it was just like, I think the lowest of announcers possible. And this was still lower than that. Like the guy kept saying (laughs) that they're just, they say the same things every time you can't foul out. It's like you killed your father or something. They're like, oh my God, he's got three fouls, like two minutes to go trail by 14. Like 
well, do you think they should bench him? It's like, isn't the point to win, not to not foul out? And then they talk about free throws and the same thing, whatever they talked about three minutes ago. You know, this guy mentioned when Johnny Juzang on UCLA fouled out that he was a 91% shooter. And he mentioned it like three other times. Like, well, you know, the other thing you miss about Juzang is that 91% free throw shooting uh, that I might that I mentioned earlier. It's like, yeah, don't say what? <laughs> Why are you still talking about it? It was, yeah, it was just ridiculous. No, I yeah. mean, nothing gambling specific in that, but more so like these guys are still taught. You can be interesting, you know, like in golf, Bones Mackay, the guy who used to caddy for Phil Mickelson and now is an announcer. He's not going to be able to meta- make a living betting on golf, but he says incredibly insightful things. He just says what's happening and adds layers in his experience of stuff happening to add a touch more color. Like they can just talk about the basketball game, but instead are trying to say like, ah, you know, you got to put your shooters on the line. Like, and he's actually has three fouls tied 61 here. You know, why don't you just talk about the game as it's happening? And I think to Collinsworth's credit, I, I never played football or know anything about it, but it seems like he, at least a little bit is just talking about the play. Like, there's three defenders on the left side, Al, and like two on the right. And that's the thing I said. So I feel like at least he does something. But uh, the basketball announcers last night, yeah, they were just so terrible. Yeah. Really, really wide range of uh, announcer level. Um, I, I can only imagine it gets worse. If I mean, I'm sure they're like reading from some sheet. Imagine like a. Bama minus two and a half, like being put on their sheet, you know, like. And I think the. What are they? They haven't gotten to like the Chris Collinsworth, Tony Romo generation in basketball or college basketball, unless it's Chris Weber, you know. Um, I think that like in ten years it'll be a lot better because Bill Raftery and Dick Vitale, etc., will be gone, and Jay Billis will be like the old guy. but it is, mm-hmm. it's tough to put up with. And I don't think anyone likes it. Like, I think if you put even Nate Silver up there, it might be okay, you know? If it just said, unless, in, I mean, unless you, That's unless tough. everything yeah. was like, well, you know, there's a 48%, as long as you're not including percentages, but just like kind of saying reasonable things about the, the game out there. Right. Well, you, there's a, those two the from the podcast dunked on, like Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue. Like the NBA sometimes gives them like a game to announce, like on one of their side streams on like League. Pass. And how is it? And uh, I, I've watched a couple, and like they're they're the type of announcer that like I would enjoy listening to mostly. Um, and I don't even like Danny Danny Larue at all, but like yeah, they're just so much better than a better than a. The normal people but i don't know if everyone would share that opinion they're just like way less polished it's kind of like good content but like they deliver it in like a pretty shitty way and and they they're already like talking professionally for the jobs too so um i don't know it seems it seems hard to be polished and have good content uh i guess it just means like, it means what does yeah. like what does polished mean like when I listen to the play-by-play, that guy, uh, the old guy, Marv, or whatever, on TNT. What's his name? 
Yeah, Mar. I think Mar. Yeah. Mar He's polished, uh, and his yeah. stuff isn't like terribly cringe. But I think that's just because he's a play-by-play guy, and he can he's forced to say what's happening. You know, I don't know if it's that he's any better. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. So I don't know if polished even adds anything. You know, is Tony Romo polished? Like when he's calling a football, he seems kind of like the gold standard in football. Where not that he's like the greatest, but he's just kind of describing what's happening on the field. Um, even he seems like all over the place. I'm <laughs> like, he seems kind of crazy when he's announcing the game. Um, I don't know if he has polish, but he's also yeah. like kind of who else is better than him, you know? I don't know. Is there in like another sport? Who would you consider the gold standard for like, announcing? I uh, I watch a lot of stuff on okay. mute, so I actually you literally watch on mute with like something else going on in the background, or yeah, like it's a tab on your computer, and you have music going out of Spotify. Yeah, it's a tab on my computer. Yeah, or you know, if I'm like on a stationary bike or something, oh, okay. <laughs> like you know, I'm listening to music. You a big Peloton guy? I'm like oh. anti-Peloton, but uh, you're. Uh, what what are the competing stationary bike companies besides Peloton? Oh, I just think you can buy a nice bike for the price of Peloton and like ride it outside. Oh, you. And then, but that wouldn't be a stationary. And bike. then uh, you can you can buy these like smart trainers that you can just remove the back wheel of your actual nice bike and put it on the smart trainer and it'll give you um like all the numbers gotcha and data so and you everything. have a diy peloton basically yeah i guess nice. um and there's this thing called zwift that it's like software for those smart trainers that you can like race your friends do you stuff. go outside <laughs> and, and ride it too put the back wheel back on yeah yeah yeah. It's a good area to ride um, your bike, right? I mean, I used to live in Austin, and you live near Austin right now. It's, are you riding out there? I mean, a lot of good spots. Yeah, it's not the greatest. It's definitely not the greatest, but uh, um, it's fine. It's like hot randomly, and I like hills, and there's not that many, but uh, yeah, it's not a bad place. So, all right, why don't we go to Chat Tim's question? Gamblers often present the idea that academics or analytics professionals who don't gamble aren't well-equipped to apply their knowledge in beating markets. As someone who has experience in both areas, do you agree? What was the learning curve like for you when getting into betting? Yeah, I thought this was a well-thought-out question. Um, I think I mostly agree that like your average analytics or academic professional isn't isn't well equipped to uh like beat betting markets. Um, My first counter to that is that I would add that most gambling people are also not equipped to beat betting markets. <laughs> like I think that's that's kind of the same point. I really think it like Okay. Because if you actually beat betting markets, you make infinite money. So unless you've been at it for a long time or like a short time or have infinite money, it's kind of like, okay, well, you also don't. And they could be a little less literate in gambling markets, but then it, that kind of boils down to, well, if the announcer just assumes that like the market is fair, they're as smart as you. You know what I mean? 
So I would, mm. I agree with the general sentiment, but I think that needs to be said that if you beat betting markets, you make infinite money. And so like, yeah. that's the bar. Like you can make fun of other people, but do you have infinite money? You know? For sure. And I think they, well, they like don't win for a very different reasons, I would say maybe like, I think that these, you know, academic people aren't necessarily asking the right questions. So like, even if they have the math skills, they're not quite thinking about predicting the result of a game or something, but maybe their skills, if applied correctly, or, you know, not, not even correctly, but just applied toward answering the right questions, they maybe could win. I would assume that gamblers who don't beat markets um, maybe have a different issue or like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally correct. Like a great point. If you, yeah, so, it could yeah. it could reverse in one direction, you know, like I think that's a good point. Like, can you bring as much, if you can't make infinite money, can you bring some knowledge to an NBA team? And like one of you, we know can't make money, but they can. And the other one, we like, we don't know if he can make money and can he, you know, like maybe you're drawing dead in one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I, I was, as I was thinking about this question, I like, uh, remembered this, uh, this one guy on the APBR forums. It's kind of like a nerdy basketball analytics forum that's kind of dying and, um, occasionally has okay content on there, but like, this one guy is like clearly some computer science or probability or just like statistics PhD was like um, posting in the season long, like win projection contest that's run on there every year. Um, basically. Yeah. These people on the forum try to predict how many games uh, each NBA team is going to win um, before the season and person with like the lowest RMSE like wins nothing but pride, I guess. Um, and everyone kind of just uses a like Kevin Pelton, ESPN writer, like uh, publishes some minutes, like player minutes projections for the year. So like everyone just kind of uses those to to do their um, to do their win projections. Um, and this guy comes in like all high and mighty and is like, oh, I made like a better model to like predict uh, player minutes. Like feel free to use my minutes instead of Kevin Pelton's because they're better. And like he attaches a CSV and like I open it and like the third name is this guy named like Axel Tupon, who's like, he was on the Warriors, like summer league or like G League roster. He's like not even on the, the Warriors team. will play a total of zero minutes for the Warriors this year. And the guy has him playing like six minutes a game or something. And like, yeah, sure, he's, like, smart at machine learning or whatever, but also just, like, doesn't know the rules. And, like, if you were to use his minutes, like, you would be hopeless um, for this contest. And, like, I think a similar idea applies for, you know, if you were trying to gamble and he gave, like, players who weren't even on the team, like, minutes, like, he would just, yeah, he would for sure lose, right? Um, yeah. I mean, that's, so, that's kind of been yeah, my approach to NBA up. this year is – Every sport I've ever done, I've kind of thought out the model a lot in advance and then gone into week one, like, or whatever, day one, 
kind of firing with feeling pretty good in my numbers. NBA, I just kind of like launched into it and was like, I'm just going to make numbers and make them try to make them a bit better every day. Um, and if you have that attitude, like, oh, my model sucks. Like, what am I wrong on today? And like, let me change it. And then maybe in a hundred days, it'll be okay. So like that guy, I feel like it's probably starting from a much further place than I would be from. Um, but like, unless you're willing to say every day, like, oh yeah, it's wrong. Like, how am I going to learn that it's wrong today and then change it for tomorrow? Uh, yeah, you're never going to get better. Yeah. So like, even though that guy might be solid, it's like, well, he's just never going to change his mind. You know? Or like, he's not going to use the info the market gives you. You know, the market gives you the right answer every day. It's like kind of a nice teaching tool. Yeah. When you say uh, getting better every day, like what, what does that mean? Like, are you back testing? I think just like... trying to like find however your model's biased that day and like changing it, you know, like, oh, I'm still like betting on these teams, the teams that I'm against or over and under on fit some pattern that like I'm not valuing correctly. Because if you're valuing every factor correctly, it's like your number is going to be good, you know, but if you're biased in the same direction, you bet the Rockets like every game. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Might be time to go back into the lab. You know, it's hard to have those like. Yeah. Are, are you um, are you assuming the market is like fair? The the end line is fair. Like, is that kind of what you're learning from? Mm, just in the sense that that's kind of you can't go past that assumption, really. You know, like if you bet on the same team back-to-back -back or three times in a row, you better be like really, really certain you aren't wrong because if you don't have infinite money, you're probably wrong, you know? Um, so it's just, you have to be the, the hurdle for clearing the market on a consistent way. You know what I mean? Like in college basketball or in golf, those are smaller markets. I'll feel pretty comfortable like, oh yeah, like I'm just factoring this one thing differently from the market, but like I feel confident I'm right and I'm exploiting it right now. Um, but in NBA, that hurdle is so much higher where when I bet on the Timberwolves three games in a row, I'm like, okay. I mean, this might be okay. It might be Rufus's, you know, directional edge, but I should really, really feel a lot more confident than I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did that with the Timberwolves this year too. So, um, and, and it might be, I mean, I don't know if it's, fun. I don't yeah. know, but I totally defer to the market, you know? For sure. Yeah. Um, would like, do you think you would ever like over adjust, I guess, if you're, if you're saying like, you're kind of trying to tweak something every day. You could, but it's like, I feel like, once I'm in tune with a market of the number closes where like I think it's pretty fair every day, or if it doesn't, I have a really good reason, then your model's kind of well calibrated. But if every day it's like you can kind of, when it's like predictable, do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you'll see where a model, if like some somebody's tweeting out plays or like someone's releasing their percentages online you kind of know where the market's going to close versus it. If you're following this stuff, you know, like if you, where if you have the same sort of bias day after day, it's like almost certainly you're wrong, you know? 
if you're like, oh, I bet Syracuse every day or I bet this under every day, it's like, okay, well, the market and you have a different valuation. Do you know that? Do you know for sure you're factoring it and valuing it right? And it's just really hard to say yes unless you've made like a lot of money or like put it in really good doing this, you know? Because if you're right, it's yeah. like, yeah, you can, okay, like you can put it in good for a while and get really, really, really rich. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think um, to that point, like a academic would, like, a, I'm, I'm thinking kind of like, you know, statistics or computer science. PhD type of person probably wouldn't think in the way that you just thought, like in terms of uh, like, I don't know that anything they would have done would tell them to like respect the market, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's um, really hard. Kind of, it's like, a lot for whatever reason people don't, but it's like, don't think of it as a handicap. Most people will like brag against EMH or brag against the market, you know, the market's stupid or CLV's stupid. It's like, why you don't need to like feel insulted by it. Cause you can just use it as a friend and as an advantage and like get really, really, really rich doing it, you know? Um, and it, I mean, it depends on the market, but NBA seems like to me, at least even after like three weeks of betting it, it's like, okay, well, if I'm right, like you can, you can put some money on the tape, but you're probably not because it's complicated and the numbers that you're using, there's a lot going into that. And just, there's a lot of people looking at this stuff, you know? the bar becomes right. just so much higher. Yeah, that's- And uh, not having bet NFL, definitely. like NBA is the biggest market I've ever bet. College football is a pretty big market. Like on Saturday at post or Saturday morning, you better be sure. And if you are, like you might be, you might have, you might get it in good, but just understand the consequences of having an edge and actually getting it in good. Um, and NBA is like that on steroids, basically. Yeah, that was definitely a big part of the learning curve is like, for me, is <laughs> learning to respect the markets or basically what you described, like, uh, you know, use it as a friend, uh, not just think that like I'm way smarter or whatever. Um, there's definitely info in the market that, you know, I'm not capturing some cutting corners, you know, not modeling every single thing um or just don't understand some effects that might be there uh when nba so teams yeah, some... like on an nba team do they know on a given night like you know our team's playing the suns tonight we have like a 70 percent chance of winning or you know we're a six point favorite or something do they know that are they aware that those sorts of things exist are they realistic about the goals for the night or is it really like the announcers saying, oh, you know, I don't want to lose back to back on a road here or home road here. Like, what is it like in the organization using gambling markets for expectations and then even knowing gambling markets exist? Um, Probably team specific, but maybe as an average, what's it like? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about the ones I've interacted with. Um, definitely know they exist. Um, some may even, um, like the coach will do like pregame goals and stuff. Sometimes that could even be shaped by 
kind of how big of a favorite or underdog they are. Um, like they're definitely aware it exists. Um, from the front office perspective, I think they're much more aware of like what the expectations for this team is like season long, like going into the year. Um, and yeah, I guess like that's about it. I don't, they're not following line moves. Certainly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, there might be something there though, to like see how much the market values a player. Like that might be a good, like if someone goes out or something, like how much does line move? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that could go into a player valuation model. That would be kind of a cheap way to do one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think a lot of the the research papers that, you know, people in analytics like read and take inspiration from are often kind of more descriptive or are just trying to use sports data as a playground or sandbox to explore like some cool math or machine learning or AI ideas or whatever. Like a lot of the... Um, uh, early like tracking data research from this group uh, at Harvard it's since been disbanded. It was called like XY research. Like, you know, their, their stuff was pretty novel and like, you know, we get a bunch of tracking data. Like how do we even begin to understand it? They would, you know, apply stuff they have done in other fields like spatial statistics or whatever, and like apply it to the NBA data and like get something out of that or like, you know, um, they would, uh, there's a nice paper called like possession sketches. They would, uh, basically use ideas from like natural language processing to kind of think of a NBA possession as a sentence where like each action, like if a player sets a screen, that would be like a word, right? So like you could compare semantics of different possessions and stuff. Um, it's like very cool, but I don't see how that would you help you at all in terms of, you know, trying to like in prediction markets that wouldn't help you in prediction markets. Well, it kind of raises uh, the question, like if it doesn't help you in prediction markets, then like, what's the point? Well, I mean, if you had the data going forward, um, like tracking data, maybe it would help you in prediction markets, yeah. but like in the current state of the world, that research is probably useless for prediction markets. Um, but if one day the public, or if you're able to get your hands on tracking data, then yeah, I'd, I'd say that there's probably some value in that. Um, so if we, yeah. we if we have, let's say, actual sharp gamblers take a team as is tonight, you know, whatever, the Wizards and Blazers are playing tonight where the Cavaliers and Jazz are playing tonight. And we just, we go to when the game starts. The gamblers are coaching one team, and we're just going to try and use some money ball stuff. You know what I mean? Like just whatever the obvious fixes are. Who is going to do better that night? Like a team run by gamblers or a team run by analytics people? And then how does that change as you operate the team for months, like would the gamblers be able to run the team well 
it seems to me like the impression from gambling Twitter or the subtext is we could run it better than they do. Is that true? Like what time horizons does that work on? And how does that relate to if the analytics people who probably think the same thing, if they took over, are there like how many teams are going to do better than the analytics guys? Than the sports gambling guys, are they all better? Are they all worse? Are there, are, you, are there a few sharp teams, a few dumb teams? What is the landscape like for winning games, you know, or for expecting yeah. to win more games? For So for a single game, I would say, like, just the way that, you know, we have to respect markets, like, I would respect the coaches and that, like, you know, they got there for a reason and can coach and stuff. So, like, yeah, I don't think sharp gamblers or analytics people would necessarily be able to get the best out of a team, like just by playing the right players, I guess, is is what they would try to do. Um, Maybe, but there might be other, like, I'm not sure, or good lineup switches or good foul, foul decisions, you know, like good, just they would have the 58% versus the 52 or whatever, you know, like they would make the small marginal decisions correctly kind of like the equivalent of going for it on fourth down or whatever in the nfl yeah right assuming you don't lose percentages elsewhere for like not quantifiable things um yeah i think gamblers and analytics people would probably take like a pretty similar approach like analytics people for basketball have been talking about like you know, don't bench your players who have two fouls in the first quarter, like, you know, early in the game. Gamblers probably have a similar opinion. Um, I would think so. I mean, at least from watching college basketball, the March Madness. Yeah, like, don't don't bench these guys. Just, like, let them play, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to matter more than it does now. Right. In, in the long run, um, I don't know. Like, where, where do you see these two disciplines as like differing if both groups are kind of trying to use statistics to like find edges i think they're just like, kind of misaligned kind of like what you said earlier where if you if you could teach like an analytics group for two days like no no, no we just want to win like or we want to focus on winning scoring more points is good like just get them to mm-hmm. really embrace these things then i think that they would be in a better position but gamblers are so much more likely to be aligned with how do I win? How do I predict the answer better? How do I make money? How do I like know yep. the winning percentage? Like you're so obsessed with winning, you're just forced into it. Um, right. And there's no reason you don't, you could be in analytics, but none of them are, you know, they're all like just a little bit more, have more leeway. And if you're a real gambler, who's actually like risking your net worth on it, you like can't afford to be wrong, you know? Totally, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good diagnosis. Um, yeah, the uh, I, I always think of that tweet by uh, Diggs, uh, different players matter, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think of it, but I don't even remember the exact, like different players. Different players at different, different positions matter, matter different amounts to different teams. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, that one. And that's true. Um, yeah, it is. Exactly. So, I mean, I feel like 
analytics people, if you're thinking about trades and stuff, you're probably thinking about that. Or like, if they had, if they see that tweet, they would agree with it. Like, you don't just uh, assume that a player on a different team with a certain player rating can be the same on your team in the same, in a different role. So, um, you know, if, if gamblers are quantifying those effects properly, um, yeah, I think it would be pretty similar to what analytics people would think for, for like player rating specifically. Yeah. Also like analytics people would never think about, uh, they don't think about like, what's the value of home court? What's the effect of back to back stuff like that? Why not? That seems so easy, right? Yeah, but it's just like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. So you or like, I had never thought about those things. I was just like, oh, I'm just going to like get good player values and going to win. But then I was like, oh, actually, you know, <laughs> uh, I have to think about how many minutes a player is going to play and um, where are they traveling to, stuff like that. Yeah. Got to know your stuff. So you referenced earlier the MJ LeBron debate, the normie debate of NBA, if you will. Yeah. Do you have a stance on that? Does like the Sharp community have a stance? My impression is the Midwit community has the consensus of MJ is better, and it might. I think it's a bit more nuanced than more rings, but it might just kind of be more rings ish. Yeah. What is the uh, actual? kind of landscape of thoughts on the goat debate i i don't really have an opinion i think uh i mean rings debate is certainly stupid um but i think like the the semi-smart like let's look at player impact stats people might or like let's look at player efficiency like might miss out on the fact that the league has trended more efficient for offense so you can't really just compare like true shooting percentage um but i don't know i i don't really have an opinion on that yeah i think it's like the eras are so different that the skills that you needed to have in each were different and not in the way of like old people say oh you had to be tough on defense or <laughs> whatever ridiculous stuff they say more like just the people were all different that certain skills worked well now and certain skills worked well then and like in terms of time inconsistency would one do better in each or is it kind of just they both do better in the one they do better in um like lebron's better of course but everyone's better of course you know yeah everyone exactly so um maybe some people don't even agree with that but I, I certainly think that people get better as time goes on. So, Yeah, or even like LeBron's, you know, taller and heavier and faster. Like all of those already work in his favor. And we yeah. haven't really talked much about basketball yet. I'm trying not to fill out subtle alterities bingo card, but what else we got here? <laughs> um, uh, that was, I, uh, I think you messaged me after, after I posted that um for the first time i thought it was pretty clever that um, was that's good it's kind of like thank you. you 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 don't realize how predictable you are but like especially when there's distance across them like i haven't recorded one of these in eight months or whatever 
of course you're repeating yourself, you know, and you can try not to in future ones. And if you did it every day, it's like, okay, dude, come on. But <laughs> yeah, like there's parts of you that are just repeating themselves. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, I guess there's a, there's a few other Twitter questions, I guess I could. Yeah. Go through them. But, uh, um, yeah, let me, let me pull this up. Might be a little pause here. Um, this log loss T guy. Other than going tout or CLV, indicators you lost your edge on the market as an originator. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like, I feel like we've talked about this before on the podcast, but if you have the same edge back to back or three days in a row, it's like, are you sure? Because if you're not sure, you're wrong. Like, and sure means yeah. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I'm pretty sure that I'm correct. And that, that might be even in a small market and like you have to get more and more confident as the market's bigger. So sure. I think that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another, uh, another thing I thought of was like, if you had some proprietary info, or data that went into your model and you know now it's become public and you know your edge was coming from there. Um, I think that could be another indicator that your edge is gone. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory though, I think. Um, he also said, do you bet any stuff which showed out of sample plus CLV, the out of sample negative ROI? Uh, no. When I back test, I, I try to do like pretty strict back testing with like out of sample everything. Um, it's kind of hard to measure out of sample closing line value. So I kind of just look if my out of sample ROI increases, like the model change I made was probably good. So if it's a out of sample negative ROI, I kind of go back to the lab and try to make it better, make it not negative ROI. Yeah, I feel like part um, of the skill in being a gambler is realizing when you're probably good and when you're probably not and understanding like you'll never actually know because if you knew you'd have infinite money, you know? Yeah. And like just kind of having that or always being aware of like, am I sure I'm good? You know, like the model's good, I know that. The data's good, I know that. The model edge is good, I know that, but like, am I positive? It, am I really 100% here that I'm for sure getting it in good? Um, right, well, cause yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing I kind of learned is that like, you're never really gonna be able to have the exact same conditions as your back test. Like I, I back test against like the closing line, right? And, you know, stuff looks good there and I'm sure about not leaking data, but then, you know, every day I'm still like, looking at how many minutes a player is going to play and, um, you know, trying to tweak that. And I know that somewhere in the back test, maybe like one of those players was like had completely wrong minutes or the way that the model assigned the minutes for the back test isn't the same process that I assign minutes now. Right. So there's always those like little things that. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's really easy to, good or not yeah. it's really easy to fade something 
that is like, oh, this team scores a million points or this team, like, you know, they never get stopped on offense. And it's you're probably right that they're, like, overvalued, but you should really be confident that, like, you're valuing them correctly because in general, it, unless your model's perfect and, like, is actually perfectly calibrated, you're probably going to be short on the people that are, like, really good at stuff. So if you have bets or edges that are like, oh, this team's really good at offense and I'm betting on them, or this team's like really fast and I'm betting over, or this team's really bad and I'm betting against them, like those sorts of things, unless your model is perfect, are probably going to be plus EV to the model. You know, they might be like 52, 52% on the model. So if you think it's 54 it might actually be you know 56 or something or like those sorts of edges are the ones that'll probably exist and in my experience all the models i build are usually much before perfect so i'm against that like i'm against the really good team and i'm short the really fast teams and i'm like i'm yeah, on so why, the team that's is, terrible and it's why, why is it that that happens like it feels like it happens across sports. Like when I make something, well, it will because I'm as long as your like, it's like your model's going to be right. It's your model's either too strong, right, or too weak. If you're right, you make infinite money. Like you're not going to be right, and you're going to be too weak. You're going to be closer to zero. You know, I feel like every factor you're probably underrating. When it comes down to like, are you accurately rating this? really good person are you averaging them or are you getting it somewhere in between and you're probably getting it somewhere in between on all of them you know like you're not properly taking into account how good they are at their thing yeah that seems i don't know that that's kind of interesting why can't i just multiply like lebron's player rating by 1.1 or something like will that do better probably not but that would fix this calibration. I guess just that you can multiply LeBron by 1.1, but when it comes to valuing the factor, you're probably going to be short the extra good people because you're going to be closer to the average by definition of like using the algo. And sometimes that's good. And on average, it's good, but there's some people that are actually very good at that factor. And I feel like, not even anecdotally, like in real life, when I bet on teams that are good, players that are good, overs that are fast, unders that are slow, when I show the edge on the kind of normie side, those are stronger out of sample than the ones that are like, I'm betting under on the really fast teams or I'm short the really good team and I'm long the really bad team. The kind of obvious type trades that I think are edge, but when you are on the favorite, on the over, on these like great teams against these terrible teams, I feel like those do really, really well. And it's if your model's perfect, it doesn't matter. But if it's not if your model's not perfect, you are going to do better on those sides, you know, the easy sides. Yeah.
interesting. I should go back and get the real results <laughs> and uh, quantify that. Um, all right, another, he had another question, another one. A market obviously thinks certain effect exists and has existed for years, but you find no evidence said effect exists. If you're not already printing gains on those samples, tips for handling said samples where you're most likely wrong about said effect. Um, I don't know. I feel like when you, I, the first thing I thought of was like, in the NBA playoffs when like the lower seed is down 2-0 going home for game three. Like they seem to be, they seem to do better. The market thinks that, and I don't know. You talking zigzag theory? Yeah, sure. Something like that. Um, I don't know how I could get my model to say that without specifically encoding that. Well, that's one of the things I've always thought about the NBA is how hard are the players trying? Because it seems to me when I'm watching that there's music in the background and it's kind of like an exhibition 10% and a competition 90%. Whereas NFL feels a lot more serious. And it might not be. They might be the same amount of seriousness. They probably are the same amount of seriousness. But is it possible that there are certain situations where players are trying harder? And if you use the same player value over every player minute, you're not getting it perfect. And they some of them do better in some situations and do worse in others. Like I yeah. think about that a lot in golf, especially in golf outrights. When you're betting on someone to win, it's kind of like the whole thing you're betting on is how good is my guy going to be when he's tied for the lead, you know? And basketball is kind of like that too. Like how good is my team going to be when we're down five, like, or when we're in these situations. And if it's not constant, then your model is going to be wrong, you know, because almost every model is treating them as constant. Like my team plays X well now and X well later, and there's deviations, but, they play the same skill level in each minute and that might not be true. And I, I mean, every fan feels that anecdotally of, Oh, this team is like playing well or they're playing bad, but if you can actually define it, um, it's very powerful. And it seems like the effect does actually exist where teams do actually play different. Exactly. Yeah. So that's definitely like something, the model, a model like that has many shortcuts that hasn't been down like the infinite rabbit holes is not going to be able to figure out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you could have a sim that even goes to that level where the player ratings aren't held constant over games and stuff. That would be, seems extremely hard. Um, but maybe, maybe that's like the next frontier or something. I don't know. Um, are there any other questions on here? Let me see. Oh, it's kind of the origin of the, of the Twitter handle. I mean, yeah, sure. That that guy was kind of surprising. It's like, oh, he's talking about some uh, Simone de Beauvoir here. I wasn't expecting uh, that from gambling Twitter. Yeah. Oh, wait, there's, there's one more before we can get to that. Um, 
Dylan Mervis, is the regularization framework applicable with tracking data, or do you think completely new frameworks will be developed? And by regularization framework, he means like RAPM. Um, and I, I think I kind of touched on this earlier. Um, yeah, tracking data is going to cause analytics to probably do other stuff. Um, I think, I mean, the regularization is just ridge regression. So surely that will still be used in some cases, but with tracking data, it's kind of like real big data. So maybe we'll see some more ideas from like AI and machine learning, like disciplines that work with actual big data. Um, you know, if you treat players as like agents or something in like an AI problem, maybe there's a, maybe there's something there. Um, Hard to say for sure without <laughs> having uh, tracking data on my hands right now. Um, all right, this last one, I can end it on uh, the origin of the handle. Um, it's actually not that exciting the story, but uh, in high school, like I had friends who did a debate and uh, you know they would say a lot of big like buzzwords and postmodern buzzwords and stuff. Um, so this one guy would always talk about alterity, which just means like otherness, like something different from a tradition or what's conventional. Um, so I just <laughs> I just thought that word was kind of funny sounding, so I took it. Um, I don't remember where the subtle comes from, but uh, yeah, that's it. Just wanted to use uh, some uh, fancy postmodern words. I mean, it worked. I think. Uh, what? It worked, right? Yeah, I think it's a has some mystique to it. Yeah, you've so. got a lot of mystique on your Twitter yeah. profile. Probably said everything I'm uh, able to say and have thoughts on. Cool. So. Thanks. This was a uh, fun. Thanks for coming Enjoyed on. The pod. Thanks for the um, tech help, and we'll talk to you later, I guess. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Are you having fun?